Uh, my name is Chris Rivera. I'm the student pastor here. I work with our middle schoolers and our high schoolers, and I'm going to be bringing the word for you this morning. So uh, I'm excited about that, but I do want to get the ball rolling. Uh, a really good friend of mine, Miss Elena Oaks, is going to read the scripture for us. Y'all are going to love her reading or love her voice. She's so sweet. Um, so I'll go ahead and bring her on up here, and we're going to get going. There's seven nice Israelite proverbs to cover today, so uh, she's going to give it a good go. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is Make glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the heart of force. Say not why were the formal days better than these. For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. Mm. Well, here, I'll pray for us. Pray for us. Uh, Father, your word uh, sounds so good, God, out of, um, out of the mouths of children. And so, God, I just pray that this morning we would remember that all contentment in our life, any form of wisdom that there might actually be, God, it comes only from you. God, death uh, is not the end for believers. And so life is only attached to a purpose when we know that eternity is coming. And so, God, I pray that you would do that. Um, You're the one that gives wisdom. You're the one that opens eyes. And so, God, I pray that you would do that by the power of your word and your spirit. That's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. That was a doozy. Uh, Seven uh, Proverbs in there. It's it's a long one. It's a marathon. Uh, But if you've been with us in Ecclesiastes for any extent of time over the last few weeks, a lot of those Proverbs and those ideas probably sound familiar. Uh, Solomon has been discussing essentially 
the purpose of life. Um, he's looking through several different lenses. First, he looked for meaning and purpose and human progress, and then things like legacy or work or your health or justice. And every single one of those, as a source of meaning, has turned up dry. He's kind of been calling them dead ends. And I think that the term dead end is funny uh, because Solomon has also said the end of all roads, wise or foolish, is death. Uh, He said that death is what levels the playing field. We're all headed for it. And and without God in the picture, death is actually just meaningless. We're going to talk a lot about death today. Uh, But if you remember, we said that if, if your worldview ends with death, and that's really the end, then you can't actually have purpose in your day-to-day life. Uh, and to prove that point, Solomon has been dramatic, right? He, he said it's actually better to never be born than to live and have a meaningless and spiritually unsatisfied life. That's what Parker hit last week. Uh, it's a sad thing to see somebody accumulate possessions and wealth and chase vanity without ever actually experiencing joy or soul-level rest. It's a waste of time. As Solomon says it doesn't matter if you live 2,000 years. It's still better that you weren't born than to spend all of your life chasing this wind. Uh, but before we get too sad, uh, Solomon has also held out the alternative worldview. He's held out an answer. He said that a meaningful life is one that is content with the hand of God, that sees everything as coming from God, good things and bad things, as gifts from the Lord. Um, and so contentment is something we're we'll to be talking about a lot today, too. But last week, Solomon gave us this question, and he's given it to us before, but he gives us a question about the purpose of life again in chapter 6, verse 12. He says, for who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, in which he passes like a shadow. It's an odd thing that he's asking that question again, right? Because he's already answered it. Four times in the book, he's already answered it. He mentions that you need to spend your life being content with your lot. That is what's good for man. He said it in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 18. He says, behold, I have seen. I have seen to be good and fitting. It's to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment and all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him for this it's his lot. So, so why did he repeat this question last week that he's already answered? And it's because he's going to give more. He's going to unpack his original answer more clearly. Uh, we've been talking about we're supposed to be content in our lot, but today it's what does that actually look like? How do we actually do that? We're going to go deeper. Uh, and so we're setting out to answer this question. What is good for me? What is good for a man in his day-to-day life? How am I actually supposed to be content? How do I enjoy this lot? And I think this passage will make it clear. Um, You are only content with your few days on this earth when you realize that it's temporary, when you realize that it does not last forever. Life under the sun is not eternal. And that's what Solomon's going to unpack. He's going to say, a truly wise person lives like he knows that he's going to die. That's the only time when you actually start to treasure, to enjoy, to steward every single day of your life. When you see life under the sun for what it is, as something that's temporary. And he's even going to say, I think that a a wise person, you can value, you can appreciate, and dare I say, you can even enjoy your own funeral. And, And that doesn't make death or suffering a good thing. It definitely doesn't mean you seek an early funeral. Solomon directly forbids that just after this passage. But when the grace of God when it shows you how to see life under the sun for what it is, death changes. 
Death changes from this bitter end and to this kind of, this kind of bittersweet doorway. So let me break this passage down for you. It's seven Proverbs. Proverbs are really tied up with Israelite culture, so we'll have to go one at a time and explain them carefully. Uh, But I think our passage fits pretty neatly into three chunks. Uh, Verse 1 through 6, it's it's what a wise man's wisdom and contentment actually look like. It's how they're actually content. Uh, 7 through 10 are the threats against it. What actually threatens our contentment? What threatens us to give up on our wisdom? And then 11 through 13 is where does it come from? Uh, what's the source of wisdom and contentment in a man's life? So, so let's get right into it. What does a person who is content with their lot look like? Verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. In the day of death and the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind... The living lay it to heart. Solomon is going to use this word good, this word better. He's going to use it in this chapter more than it pops up in any other chapter in the entire Old Testament. He just asked, what is good for man? So he's going to answer, this is what's good, this is what's better, this is what's best. And the thrust of these first few verses is that it is better to anticipate your death, to stare at it in reality, than it is to pretend that you're going to live forever. Because somebody who is unwilling to think about the end can never actually be content. It's crazy how that works. Uh, First, he compares our name to a precious ointment. And so as 21st century Americans who who speak English, uh, the comparison is a little bit lost on us. But it's actually a pun. Uh, The Bible is full of puns. It's full of wordplay. Name and ointment uh, is actually Shem and Shemen. And here's what he's getting at. He says, when you die, your character, the testimony of your character, will matter more than how you smelled, how you looked on the outside. Your internals are going to matter more than your externals. So for some context, a name was not just a label for an Israelite. A name was who you were. It was your underlying nature, not just how popular you are. It's the reputation of your actual character. And Israelites took their name so seriously that God is described as going and getting a name for himself when he, when he saves his people through the Exodus. More than once, biblical characters are pleading with God to act, and they plead based on his name, on the reputation of his character. They want him to be uh, reputable. And so here's our, our first look at what a wise and content person actually looks like. It's somebody who understands that the quality of my character matters so much more than how cleaned up and how pretty I look on the outside. And when he says ointment, he's not talking about triple antibiotic, right? It's not Neosporin. He's talking about perfume. And by the way, perfume back then wasn't just something you could go buy at Target. It was very valuable. It was very expensive. You might remember the story. Mary pours a bunch of ointment on Jesus' feet, and Judas is like, bro, what are you doing? You're wasting all of this money. It was an extreme act of devotion. So Solomon is saying, man, who cares if your corpse smells pretty if you left behind a bad name? And so somebody who's content with their lot, they invest their time on the internals as opposed to focusing everything on this outward appearance. And then he extends this comparison. Uh, A good name is better than ointment and death is better than birth. Your death is going to matter more than your birth. What does he mean by that? Well, he's just talking about your name. He says, your name can't be fairly judged at your birth. Your name can only be fairly judged at your death. 
You see, on the day that you were born, you're like the ointment, right? You're young, and you're beautiful, and you're adorable, and you are very, very, very expensive. But the actual quality of your character has yet to be seen. Uh, there's no way to appropriately judge the name that you've been given. And it's not until your funeral where you can actually make a fair assessment about whether or not your life was meaningful. And I know that sounds kind of like an out-of-pocket thing to say on the same day that we had a baby dedication, uh, but it's the truth. It's the truth. We join in with these parents in, in the hopes and the prayers that, hey, man, 60, 70 years from now, they'll look back and say, I lived a life of contentment with the Lord. I lived like everything I had came from God's hand. I promise that's what their parents really want. The birthday parties are cool. Crew is going to be fun, but they would be sad if their kids grow up never content in their few days on earth. If they miss out on honoring God and laboring for his glory. They won't actually enjoy the time that they have. And so Solomon continues his connection. Verse 2. A wise person appreciates a house of mourning, a funeral, more than he appreciates a house of mirth. It's a party. And why should a funeral be enjoyed? What's, what's good about a funeral? It helps you anticipate your own funeral. A funeral can sober you up really quickly. It can make you think about the reality of your own death. Now, of course, if, if you partied in the 70s and 80s, you're like, well, a party can make you face your own death too. It's kind of crazy. Uh, but we're speaking philosophically here. Uh, funerals are more sobering than parties. And, and now don't hear me incorrectly. Uh, no one's hastening their own funeral or anyone else, else's funeral for that matter. But it has an advantage. It has an advantage over a party because when you go to one, you think about the purpose of your life. You meditate on whether or not your life has been meaningful. A cake and ice cream can't do that, right? And so I want to pause for a second because death is a sensitive topic. It's a delicate thing to talk about. I'm just going to say only, only a believer can see the true beauty of a funeral. And many of you have experienced this, right? Attending a believer's funeral is a very different experience than attending someone's funeral who is not a believer. You know what I'm talking about. It's hard. It's where the rubber meets the road. It's where you figure out really quickly, what do I actually believe about my resurrection and my eternity? And it's very different. You can feel it in the room. At every funeral, there's two crowds, right? There's people looking at their greatest enemy that they have no answer for. And then there's people looking at a defeated enemy. And that's what he means about it can be a joy. Your funeral can be a joy when death has been defeated. It's a very sad thing to go to a funeral where everyone thinks that death is the end. We sang this, but this is from 1 Corinthians 15. This is what's true because of the gospel. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so sometimes, you know, we call funerals a celebration of life, and I love that. But it's only a celebration of life for someone who is going into eternal life. And so, yes, it's sad, but it's incredibly beautiful to go to the funeral of somebody who was content and a believer in the Lord. And that doesn't mean that we don't mourn, right? It doesn't mean we don't grieve. By the way, mourning and grieving was very serious in Israel. They would weep over the loss of a loved one for days, sometimes for weeks. And so just let that be a, a, a notice to you. Those emotions, that grief is not inherently sinful, right? You're an emotional creation because God is an emotional God. But Paul actually explains it in 1 Thessalonians, we don't grieve like somebody who has no hope. We have confidence in our resurrection. We know that this life is temporary. We know that death is not the end. 
And so Solomon is, he's echoing that exact sentiment here in the passage. Somebody who knows that life under this sun is gonna end one day, man, if they're content, they'll live with their funeral on the mind. You will ironically become more content with daily life as you are sober about the reality of your own death, as you look beyond it into eternity. In verses 3 and 4, they keep that same idea going. Uh, verse 3, it says, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. A made glad here, I think, is a kind of an interesting translation. It's not that he's happy. The Hebrew means that your heart is literally put right, that it's put into the right place. He's saying that grief, that sadness has an advantage over laughter because it actually situates our heart for wise judgments. Looking at sadness can temper your expectations, it can temper your perspective, it can open your eyes to your need for the Lord in a way that laughter just kind of can't. And when we say heart, you should know that uh, the word heart has a different meaning for the Jewish culture. Uh, your heart was not just your emotions. Uh, your heart was you. <laughs> it was the center of your being. When they said heart, they meant your thoughts, your understandings, your will, your desires, your reflections. It was you in totality. And so he's saying a wise person sets their heart on the end instead of setting their heart on the temporary pleasures of this life. He's saying that's what wisdom does. When you know this life is temporary, you center your thoughts, you center your reflections, you center your, your personality on eternity instead of this house of mirth. Uh, your translation might say feasting, or maybe it might just say party. It's like a rowdy party, right? He's saying a fool. It is a fool that sets the ultimate goal of his heart, that focuses everything that they are around temporary pleasure. This metaphorical party, it's fleeting. It's foolish. And so let me throw that out there uh, for every student in the room. The party is not going to be worth it. The party is never worth it. As Solomon is going to describe what's going on at this party. He's going to show, hey, if you're truly content, you won't bend your life around feasting. You won't bend your life around indulging, and the party's not going to be worth it in the end. Verse 5, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. And this also is vanity. He's saying a truly wise perspective, it, it changes who you surround yourself with. That is very tied to your contentment in the Lord. If you want to see this life clearly, if you want to see life under the sun for what it really is, if you actually want to be content, part of that is being mindful of who you surround yourself with, right? He says it's better to be around a wise person who will rebuke you than to be around a fool who's just singing along. So listen to the person who loves you enough to correct your mistakes than to the person who's going to sing and cheer you on down the road. It's better to listen to the wise person. So, so students, the, the adults in your life, they're not just trying to cramp your party. They're not just trying to, to harsh the vibe. They're not trying to siphon the joy out of your life. They just want you to understand, dude, I went to that party, and it was foolish, and I regret it. But of course, that this, this extends to more people than just students. Uh, all of us understand this. If, we're, if we listen to the wrong influences, if we're constantly filling our minds with wisdom, we become wise. If we're constantly filling our minds with foolishness, with the songs of fools, the more we find ourselves chasing what they're chasing. And, and surely that's, you know, that satisfaction feels pretty cool for maybe like 30 seconds, uh, but it disappears in a moment. 
And that's what Solomon is getting at when he's talking about the thorns under the pot. It's the word picture he's making. It is a, a common proverb, the ancient world. Back in these days, thorns were excellent fuel for a fire. They were in great supply because most people had vineyards. They were easy to find. But the catch is that they burnt very quickly. They ran out of fuel. They extinguished themselves in seconds. It's fast. Psalm 58 says the only thing faster than burning thorns is God's judgment on the wicked. And so thorns burn pretty, pretty fast, right? But the word picture here, it's this dazzling and this fleeting spark. And you know, we don't, we don't burn thorns for fuel anymore, but it reminds me of leaves. It reminds me of leaves. Any Boy Scouts in the room, just by show of hand, my Boy Scouts? What is the one thing they say, hey, don't build your fire out of this unless you're trying to start a forest fire? What do they tell you not to use? Leaves. Don't use leaves. Why? Because they burn fast, and they burn hot, and they spread quickly, but they're gone in an instant. It's bright, it's flashy, it's not going to keep you warm through the night, and it's going to make a big mess of your fire. You know what else happens when you burn leaves? They smoke too much. It seems like you're doing great, but the gases and the particles of burnt leaves are actually toxic for your lungs. If you breathe them consistently, they can accumulate and stay in there for years. And some of y'all are like, oh, geez, what am I supposed to do with my yard? Because it's fall and it's, it's bad out there. Uh, but Solomon's equivalent of just burning these leaves to get a, to hot feelings, he says it's like burning thorns, right? This is the song of fools. Their laughter, it goes up like a sudden flame, just like leaves or thorns. It, it comes to life quickly. It's a rush. It sparkles. It dazzles. It starts crackling under the pot. It's making a bunch of noise, and you're like, yeah, I'm cooking now. I'm in the kitchen. This is great. And then in a moment, it's put out. It dies disappears on you. And just like leaf smoke, it has lasting consequences. And so Solomon is saying, hey, that pleasure now, that, that party life mentality, that instant gratification lifestyle, it's for fools. It's superficial and it's pointless because somebody who enjoys what God has given them, someone who's actually content, is not willing to trade it all away for a moment. But you know, a discontent person will sacrifice just about anything to feel content for a moment, won't they? How often, how quickly do we trade our peace of mind? Will we trade our whole relationship? Students, sometimes you'll trade your physical safety just for a quick emotional spark, an ounce of adrenaline, a couple seconds of pleasure, just to get a couple laughs out of somebody that you think is cute. But we would do better to agree with Solomon here. It's better to surround yourself with someone who will stop you from going down those paths and somebody who will cheer you on. But here we are at a bit of a transition uh, for the sake of time. Solomon has been talking about what a wise perspective on life actually entails. Uh, to be content with the life that God has given you, he said, you know, anticipate your own death. A focus on eternity. I think about your internals more than the externals. Remember that your, your funeral will be a better judge of your life than your first birthday. Uh, don't bend your life around pleasure and laughing and feasting. Be sober-minded about the reality of this brokenness. Remember that it is temporary. That's what it actually looks like to be content. Uh, that's what life under the sun is actually good. That's when it's good, when you see it for what it is. And when you do that, he said that even your death can become appreciated. But let's move on into this next section. Because Solomon wants us to know that suffering and death and brokenness in this world, yes, it can refine you, but it doesn't always have healthy effects for your contentment either. It's not all sunshine and rainbows, right? It's not like, oh, I just welcome, I chase after suffering, I love it because it refines me. 
No, suffering can hurt your contentment too. Yes, you, you can respect and appreciate death and suffering, but don't fool yourself into thinking that it's fun or that it's harmless. Because life under the sun can be enjoyed, but it can also be incredibly cruel. Verse 7, surely, so he's like, surely, before you start thinking, you know, suffering's great, oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. These are some of the threats to our contentment, and these two threats, I think, are pretty straightforward. Uh, suffering and, and injustice, it can drive even a wise person mad. When it says mad, he literally means it can make you lose your mind. You know that to be true. You know, for example, we believe in God's sovereignty. We really do believe that God has appointed every ruler in every nation at every place and at every time. God is sovereign over all of it. But when we start to see oppression in human history, when we see the wicked prosper, when we see injustice, and we start trying to reconcile that with God's sovereignty, man, that can really be a threat to our contentment, can it? We can very easily lose sight of God's promise to defeat death when we look and we see injustice in the world. Uh, or in our own personal world, or our own lives too. Because, uh, you know, many wise Christians, many wise Christian authors as well, they have had existential faith dilemmas. When something happens that, that seems so unjust in your own life that you feel like you can't reconcile it with God's plan. A book that comes to mind, maybe you've read it before, it's called A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis. He loses his wife, and he hits the absolute brink of despair in that book as he contemplates her death, his faith, the meaning of his life. And some people think that because of how kind of brutally honest that book should be thrown out. But I think that the specks of hope he finds in that grief, the specks of hope he finds in the gospel, I think that's the closest to true wisdom that dude might have ever gotten. But, but a particularly bad or evil season of your life can easily cloud your perspective of all seasons coming from God's hand. Uh, next up, this next, this next threat, it's bribery. He uses the word heart there again, too. A bribe can corrupt your heart, your inmost being. And we see this all the time in America, by the way. Uh, there's nothing so inwardly corrupting and ugly as a lust for money, isn't there? It'll drive people to do insane things. Uh, you know, 30 to 40% of divorcees list money as their primary reason for separation. People all over the world, in the name of profit, are currently enslaving their neighbors, whether it's an illegal business or an organized business, and they're doing it under the table. Wars are waged over money. First Timothy says the, the love of money is the root of all evil. And you can figure out really quickly where somebody's beliefs are when their money is on the line. It's a big threat. And now these are proverbial sayings, of course, but we can't forget that Solomon is speaking from experience. He's not just giving general wisdom. He's speaking from experience. A couple chapters ago, he was talking about injustice in the kingdom that he was supposed to be leading, but he's seeing injustice, and it creates this big ethical dilemma for him. It frustrates him and makes him ponder the meaning of life. As the premier king of Israel, he had more money than you can feasibly imagine, like nobody before or after him. And so he knew how tempting that could be. And so just for us, if, if wealth and if uh, oppression can make the wisest man on earth second to Jesus Christ become discontent, I think that we should take that warning seriously as well. But let's keep moving. Verses 8 and 9. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. So in patience and anger, 
are these next two threats against your wisdom, against your contentment in the Lord. And in verse 8, it, it carries the echoes of a funeral compared to a birthday, the end to the beginning. But he extends it to all things. He says, generally, you can only make a fair judgment about what's going on, a situation, a season of life. You can only be fair about it at the end. When he says the end of a thing, he means the outcomes. He means the products. You can only judge a situation correctly once you've seen the outcomes. And so we should stay patient. He means it's better to stay humble. It's better to wait for the end of a season than to be arrogant, proud in spirit, and judge something prematurely. And we need to remember, for the sake of our own contentment, God can use suffering for our good. That's how Paul said you learn to be content with it. But suffering just as easily can make us make premature judgments, hasty decisions, and it can make us very impatient. I don't know about you, but the first thing I find myself doing whenever I'm uh, facing any kind of a suffering or trial, hey, God, can you take this away? <laughs> Please, can we just get over this? I'm kind of sick of dealing with this. It's been a year. It's been four years. It's been seven years. I'm ready to be done. I don't want to do with it anymore. And, and we can quickly lose sight of how God uses all things, how God can use even suffering to conform us into the image of his son. It takes our eyes off of eternity. We start thinking that, man, this season is going to last forever. It's never going to have a purpose. It's never going to be worthwhile. But only a believer can look back on those things, can look back at death, can look back at the, at the loss of a child, of heartbreak, of tragedy, and say what he said in chapter three, man, God made this season beautiful in its time. But a threat to our contentment in Christ is impatience, it's pride. Uh, we start getting arrogant with the Lord, right? And I say arrogant because that's what proud in spirit means there. This is from Proverbs 16, verse five. This is what God has to say about someone who's arrogant in their heart against the Lord. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Rest assured, he will not go unpunished. When he says arrogant in heart, proud in heart, the idea there is that someone who is consistently irritated with the ways of God, somebody who is never actually trusting that his way is better, someone who genuinely is prideful enough to think that they know better than the Lord. Multiple times in scripture, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so I think that that's just, that's a great warning for us this morning to hold on to this wise perspective, to, to remember that life is temporary, to remember God's sovereignty. We have to stay patient. Uh, we have to trust the sovereignty of the Lord that it's all going to make sense. Uh, Romans 8, 18 says this. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, they are sufferings, they're awful, but they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so, yes, when we forget that all of this stuff we see is temporary, we start to lose sight and become impatient with the Lord. It's a fast track to losing your contentment. Uh, and next up is anger. Okay, talking about anger. And when I say anger, you probably just think about getting mad, right? It's not just the simple emotion of just being upset or being mad about something. When he says anger, he means exasperation. He means a resentful anger, bitterness. He's used this anger to talk about injustice and how angry it makes him, makes him bitter, He's talked about seeing a widow. That makes him bitter. He talks about seeing persecution and how meaningless life is. It makes him bitter. And so he's not just talking about someone who's upset and in a rage. He's talking about someone who is incredibly discontent and frustrated. And, and now, listen, a wise person, someone who's content with Jesus, they still feel those things. They still get frustrated 
We all still get a little bit irritated with God's plan, but the difference is that we go to the Lord when we see injustice, when we don't understand why something is happening in the world, when we can't see the good in in a death or, or in a circumstance. We take it and we lay it at the feet of a sovereign God and we let it make its home there because he has promised to work for our good. But according to Solomon, the other place that that anger will make a home is in your heart. It's in your heart, this dark and this calloused anger. He says if you tolerate that resentment, if you do not find an appropriate place, aka the feet of God, to lay these frustrations down, it starts to make its home in your heart. And remember, your heart is you. Your heart is the center of your being. Anger becomes a description of the innermost part of your personality, Solomon says. That's the threat of this kind of anger. It's not just an emotion. It is a spirit-level frustration. And man, do you want to see somebody who's not content with the hand of God? You want to see someone who's preoccupied with the moment and who doesn't keep their eyes on eternity? Man, it's someone who's bitter. Uh, Someone who is bitterly angry. I've not met a lot of people in my life that, that I would say is just an angry person. But the couple that I have seen, man, they have been through some suffering. A bitterness, I think, is one of the most negative effects of death and suffering. It's what happens when you grieve without hope. It's what happens when you attend a funeral where death is the end. It produces that level of resentment. You can get lost in that anger. Unprocessed grief, unprocessed trauma, unprocessed injustice can result in bitterness, and it's a sad thing to see. Uh, but as we keep moving, uh, these threats are really tough. They're really hard to look at, but he's giving us principles about them, right, as we keep moving. This next verse is something that I think we can all relate to. Uh, whether you're mad at oppression, whether you're kind of hunting after money, whether you're impatient, or whether you're angry, this right here is the trademark line. Print it and copyright it. Of somebody who is not content with God's hand, you hear this all the time from somebody who was always looking for meaning and purpose and the fleeting things of the sun. Verse 10, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you've asked this. You've heard this statement before. It's like, Man, I wish it was just the good old days. I wish it was the good old days. Man, that's a dead giveaway that somebody is not content with their lot in life. They start to idolize their past. They start to romanticize the future, right? Just like the Israelites. An ounce of suffering comes our way, and we're whining worse than they are. Oh, man, I want to go back to Egypt. It was better there. Except these days, it's more like, man, everything was better in the 70s. No, it wasn't. This never would have happened if Bush was president. Right? Uh, but it gets more personal than that, too. It's not just political opinions. Uh, we say stuff all the time. Man, if only me and my wife were newlyweds again, then maybe it'd be okay. Maybe we'd be content. Man, only if my kids were little again, then, then I'd be happy I could do things right. Maybe, maybe if I could just go back to last year when I was really on top of my reading and my praying, man, then I would be content. If I was just in that season. But let me remind you, if every season comes from the hand of God, you have zero control over that. You cannot make a season come and go. You can't make the weather come and go. Uh, we have more technology than, than every generation that's ever come before us, and you can barely tell me if it's going to rain tomorrow. Everyone was saying two days ago it was going to snow on Halloween. It's supposed to be like 37 and raining now. We don't know the future. We can't change the future. And so throw reading the seasons of your life out the window. We idolize the past. We idolize past seasons because we look at them with nostalgia. Uh, we look at them at these, with these rose-tinted glasses that just conveniently forget 
everything that was broken and difficult back then, <laughs> right? Because according to Solomon, that was under the sun, the future is under the sun, and so it is foolish to idolize your past, and it really gets in the way of your contentment with the hand of the Lord. You, you cannot solve the discontentment of this season by wishing and pining for another one. As someone who is always looking backwards can never be content with what God has done right in front of their face. And when I was studying this, it reminded me of a situation that happened with Israel, actually with Solomon's temple. It was destroyed, but then Ezra and Nehemiah come back and they build the second temple. And God's done a wonderful thing there. He returned the Israelites from exile. It was an absolute miracle. You should read about it. It's fantastic. And they start building this temple again, the one that Solomon had originally made. But it's more or less pathetic compared to Solomon's temple. It's nothing like it used to be. And what do you see? People who are weeping for what the temple used to be. There were people there that were still alive before the exile. Ezra 3 says this, Many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's houses, the old men who had seen the first house, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Their past it was a grand and amazing time under Solomon, but preoccupation with what used to be it caused a bitter, uh, sorry, bitter disappointment with what they had now. The, the literal foundation of a new temple is being laid that ultimately is a prefigure of their coming Messiah in Christ. And they cannot see it, they cannot enjoy it, because they are crying so loud that you can hear them over the shouts of joy. They're weeping for their past. You can't be content with the lot that you have if all you can think about is a previous lot. Uh, let's keep moving. We'll hit this last little division. Uh, we talked about how a wise man has contentment from the Lord and what that looks like. What does it actually look like, one through six? Uh, he, he knows he's not going to live forever, so he enjoys his lot now. He's not distracted by life's pleasures. He thinks about his own death. And we just talked about some threats to that commitment. But here is the source. This is the source of our wisdom and contentment. Verse 11. Wisdom is good with an inheritance. Your translation might say wisdom is good as an inheritance. It's an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. In verse 11, Solomon, he's comparing wisdom to an inheritance. He's saying that, hey, when it comes to money, an inheritance is only really an advantage if you also inherit wisdom, if you can see the sun, he said. And he's already argued that. Uh, what good is it to inherit every ounce of wealth in this world <laughs> if you don't have the wisdom from God to actually enjoy it? You know, money can be unjustly squandered, remember, in as little as a generation. Solomon is living that out in real time. But if you pass on wisdom, if your children inherit biblical wisdom, then everything else you passed on to them can be worthwhile as well. And so, I, just quickly, you remember we've been talking about these two ditches. Parker's been describing them well. Uh, on one hand, we don't pretend like we can guarantee the future or that we can guarantee that for generations our house will be great. But on the other hand, we're not just like, well, can't control anything. Sorry, buddy. I'll leave you out to dry. Uh, no, good luck, right? No, it's you work hard. <laughs> you work hard to pass them the best future that you can. Uh, there's nothing wrong with savings accounts. Uh, King Solomon would be the first person to tell you it is a big advantage to get an inheritance. 
right? Inheritances are good things. But he's making a comparison here. He's comparing inheritance with wisdom. He wants you to understand how badly you need wisdom and where you get it from. So he compares it to inheriting money. Uh, Just like money uh, provides for your daily meals and protects your daily life and pays your daily bills, wisdom can provide for you daily on a much deeper level. Uh, That's what we need to pass on. More than the amount of dollar bills is passing on biblical wisdom, right? Who cares if I secure uh, three years of bills with my will and testament if I never gave my children the truth of God's word? Uh, But when somebody actually inherits wisdom, they see the sun, They see life under the sun for what it is. They understand it's temporary, and they make the best of what they have. That's how wisdom preserves their life. It shows them how to be content. It gives them joy in the Lord. And I think that this idea of an inheritance, I really do think it's our best connection to the gospel here in this passage, right? Uh, Think about an inheritance. An inheritance is given to you uh, by no effort of your own. You do not earn your inheritance. In fact, it is earned on your behalf. And Solomon has just compared that to wisdom and contentment. He's saying it's received the same way. Uh, The wisdom of contentment, this lasting purpose that lets you see the world for what it is, it is given to you by God, by no credit of your own. It's inherited. Uh, Let me paint a good picture of what inheritance actually looks like in Israel. It was a big deal. Uh, Scripture is very clear. All of the land that that nation had, it belonged to the Lord. It was not theirs. It belonged to God, ultimately. But he allocates it among the different tribes. They, they get their literal lot from God. Some tribes get more, some tribes get less. But here's the cool part. For an Israelite, your inheritance could never leave you. Your inheritance could never leave your tribe, and it could never leave your family. How crazy is that? That little lot of land you got, if you got this and they got that, man, that's what you got from the Lord. And it's what your future kids are going to have and their future family is going to have. It's all in the family. It can't be taken away. If a man of the house died, another man in the family had to rise up and take care of the land. If a husband died, another person in the family married his wife and raised kids. Your inheritance was yours for all time. It came directly from the Lord. It is the unremovable possession of God's people. And Solomon has just said that you get wisdom, you get contentment in your life the exact same way. He's pointing to the sovereign God of Israel. It only comes from the Lord. Uh, Everything the Israelites owned, every field, every piece of grain, every harvest, every death, every marriage, it all pointed to their lot that God had given them. And he's just connected it to wisdom. What's the implication? Contentment in your life can only be given to you from God. He's already said that before. It's only from the hand of the Lord. And he gives it to those whom he wills. He's the one that divides it the way that he decides to. That's the only way you can have the contentment we've been talking about this morning. Don't just take my word for it. He said that in 519. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. He will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Chapter 6, 1 and 2. There's an evil I've seen under the sun. It lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth and possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. And so back to our original question that Solomon just asked, how can a man know what is good for him the few days of his vain life? Who can show a man what will come after him under the sun? Who can show him what's beyond death? God. 
only the Lord. A man can only find meaning of God gives it to him. And that runs all the way through the passage today. Only God can teach a man to anticipate his death humbly. Only God can teach a man to see sadness in the right perspective. Only God can prevent uh, anger and impatience and discontentment in our heart. Only God can give us purpose. Just like an inheritance, godly wisdom is unearned and it's undeserved. And that's why I love the way that Ephesians 1 puts it. Uh, Paul is talking about inheritance. And he's talking about what we've inherited in Christ. He's talking about salvation. And not just salvation. He says that we've inherited every spiritual blessing, the riches of his grace. He says that Christ has given us all wisdom and all insight. And as soon as the question pops into your mind, like, man, why would Jesus do this for us? He says this in 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Here's why. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Man, why would God give us wisdom, salvation, and an inheritance? Because it was his sovereign and eternal will to do so. And he willed it because it would bring glory to his own name. He's pointing to God's sovereignty in Ecclesiastes. And so let me ask you, who is more content than somebody who lives every day with their eyes on their future promised inheritance in Jesus? Who is more content than the person who knows, man, I'm going to die one day, so I'm going to spend every day of my life for the glory of God? Do you know someone like that? Aren't they just magnetic and wonderful to be around? Uh, but it's God alone that gives that inheritance and the wisdom. <laughs> Church, you'll only find it. You'll only find contentment as you behold the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But you know the, the crazy thing about this inheritance? I don't know about you, but if I had a bunch of kids and I was trying to pick who to give inheritance to, I would not give it to the fool. But Jesus was willing to give it to people who are absolute spiritually blind fools. People who were not wise. Christ makes wise for salvation. We wouldn't even dare to die for a righteous person, let alone an evil fool. But Romans 5 says this, for why we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But Christ, God, shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The only reason that we get to wake up and go to sleep content with our life is because God has graciously and sovereignly given us an inheritance with Christ. And with that thread, with that thread that he's making of God's sovereignty, of inheritance, of wisdom, Solomon lands the plane for us. Verse 13, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? That's the last thing that a content person does. He considers the sovereign work of the Lord. When a truly content person sees brokenness and crookedness and suffering in this world, he considers the Lord. He knows that God has promised to make it straight. And the sufferings and the trials and even death, that doesn't make us impatient, it doesn't make us angry, it doesn't make us discontent. Because of the gospel, we don't despair. And we also don't believe the lie that it's gonna be fixed on this side. We don't believe the lie that somehow just by human effort we can fix all this brokenness. We don't believe that. No, we put our hope in a sovereign Lord who has promised to make all things straight in the end. God promised in Isaiah, the crooked road shall become straight and the rough way smooth and all people will see God's salvation. So I said it at the start, but I'll say it again. Uh, contentment will only come if you understand that this life is temporary. But church, it's, it's only the Lord who can bring you to that realization. I can tell you all day, but only God can straighten what he's made crooked. 
And so this week, I'm not just going to pat you on the back and say, all right, man, go be, go be more wise. No. <laughs> what is good for you the few days of your life? Seek the Lord. Find your contentment in Jesus because this life is a vapor. Uh, spend it with your eyes on the day where God is going to set everything right. And then along the way, you will notice that you actually enjoyed your life the way that it was intended to be enjoyed. You will actually be content. Let's pray. Uh, Father, forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, um, for our discontentment in your ways, our discontentment in our lot. God, the envy of our neighbor, Solomon said. Uh, Father, every single one of us, God, are, are foolish. Lord, we are all prone to not be wise. We're all prone to think we know better than you. God, this, this book is cyclical and it repeats itself. And my first impulse was, man, this is going to be boring. People aren't going to care. But God, it's not boring because just like every week before this, we need to hear it again. God, how, how naive of me, Lord, of us, to think that we don't need to hear your word repeated, to think that we're going to hear it once and we're going to have it all under control. God, all the reminders in this passage of where contentment really comes from, about being realistic about our death, God, that comes from you. God, realizing that eternity is coming and that you've made the way for us to be with you forever, God, only you can reveal that. Only you can open the eyes of the blind. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would do that God, during this worship service. God, if there's people in here that have never known the contentment of your hand, of your face, of your presence, God, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Lord, please speak to us this morning. It's in your name we pray.